0: Guy Kawasaki has certainly had a remarkable career. From gaining popularity as the chief evangelist at Apple for the Macintosh computer in the 1980s, to authoring 15 books, hosting the Remarkable People podcast, Guy has made a habit of trying new things and turning them into successful ventures. During our conversation with Guy, we talk about why it's important to be able to
1: make a sale, no matter what your role is. We discuss the start of his career at Apple, and how he got developers to write software for a relatively unknown platform. And we ask his advice for people just
0: getting started in their own careers, whether that's in tech, writing, or entrepreneurship. We hope you absorb some of Guy's enthusiasm as you listen to this episode, and that it helps you on your personal journey to being remarkable. We're big fans of Gusto who make it easy to run payroll, set up healthcare, and other benefits for your business. They've made setting up the HR infrastructure for Design Better a breeze. Gusto is also one of the best design SaaS tools out there. Design Better listeners get three months free once they run their first payroll. Just go to gusto.com slash design better. We'll tell you more about them later in the show. Guy Kawasaki, welcome to the Design Better podcast.
2: Thank
1: you. Thank you. It's really exciting to have you here. I've been a yeah, fan you say that of to everybody. Yeah, no, I've been <laughs> a fan of your work since I was since I was a little guy reading uh was it Macworld magazine? That yeah. you wrote or a Mac yeah.
2: user. Yeah, Mac So user, you're saying yeah. I'm old. Or mm. we're all old here, so. so. <laughs> it's not <laughs> how old you hand. are, it's how relevant you are. That's there right. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. So on that
1: topic, guy Could you take us back to 1983 and Apple's about they're about to air their famous 1984 ad, which you haven't if you haven't seen it as a listener, you should go watch it. It's one of the best probably advertisements ever made directed by Ridley Scott. Take us back to 1983. You're just getting started at Apple. Macintosh was relatively unknown at that point. What were some of the steps that you were taking to get developers to be excited to
2: collaborate with Apple? So 1983 was the start of for me, what I would call the wonder years, because it was just a time of amazement. And to tell you the truth, I was wondering when there would ever be software, because that was my job. So There were two aspects to the wonder years. But it was a time where it was the Macintosh division, it was a small group of people, just insanely effective, intelligent people. And I'm not heaping praise upon myself. I'm talking about the other people. So it was a privilege and an honor to work in that division with some of the smartest people I've ever encountered. And of course we work for Steve Jobs, which is a once in a lifetime experience. And we were convinced that we were going to prevent a totalitarian 1984 dystopian, utopian world by shipping a computer. I mean, that's how much we believed in it. So it wasn't shipping another computer. It was changing the world, denting the universe, preventing the end of democracy. It sounds maybe a little facetious now, but really we did believe that. And it was just a remarkable time. So my job was to convince people to write Mac software and create Mac hardware products because a computer without third-party products is basically useless. So my job was to use fervor and zeal, but seldom, if ever, money to get them to do this. And it was because of evangelism. And evangelism comes from a Greek word meaning bring the good news. So we brought the good news of more creativity and productivity with this computer. We also brought the good news to developers that here is a platform that finally had the richness of the ROM that you could write the software that you always dreamed of writing. So this is, we are giving you a new palette. Unlike other platforms, you could just create the most insanely great software ever. And so my job was to make them believe in this dream and buy the dream that we had and write great software.
0: One of the key differences with Apple's approach and the promise inherent in that 1984 ad is a humane experience versus other platforms that were very technical, that relied on a high bar for learning. It didn't really have usability built in, had a lot of technical capabilities, but it didn't have a great user experience. And that was a key differentiator for Apple. That's still the secret sauce today. Could you talk to us about your perspective on user experience and how that changed the software landscape? So I came from the
2: Apple II world, and in the Apple II world, you were lucky if you had a 24 by 80 display with four cursor keys to move around where you were on the screen. And one day, my friend, Mike Boich takes me in the back room of the Macintosh division, this is before I worked for them, and he showed me MacPaint and MacWrite. Now, many people listening to this may not know what MacPaint and MacWrite were, but MacWrite was a WYSIWYG processor where you change the font, you change the size, you integrate text and graphics, and it's just like you see it. Mac Paint was a painting program with brushes and tools and lines and fill patterns. So you're coming from the Apple II world or the MS-DOS world, this is as if you know the scales were removed from your eyes. And Going from cursor keys to a point-and-click mouse was remarkable. It was literally a religious
0: experience for me. I thought, oh my God, this is the future. It was that obvious to me. And how that manifests today as user experience has become so predominant. And you've advised and have been involved with lots of startups, and this is often advice given, is that we need to focus on creating a really compelling user experience. But there are different powers kind of working together, collaborating, hopefully, not not conflicting, in building great products and great user experiences. You have product managers, you have engineers, and you have designers. Of those three, which one seems to be the biggest constraint on a company's output and success? I don't think of those three, the biggest factors in there. I think the biggest
2: factor is probably upper management, maybe specifically the CEO, because in the Macintosh division, the CEO, basically Steve Jobs, he demanded a certain elegance, a certain minimalism, a certain aesthetic, a certain sort of philosophy, and I don't think that's true in most companies, especially today. Most companies are run by a CEO who's relatively clueless about design. And so when you're working for someone that you know is clueless, guess what? You also (laughs) create clueless user interface because nobody is there to tell you that you have a piece of shit. So if you're working for someone who doesn't tell you that, arguably, how would you know? And so now with Steve Jobs... If anything, he told you everything was a piece of shit that you did. So, (laughs) you know, you may have the opposite problem. But it would be, not that I know the restaurant business this well, but, you know, if the chef, if the head chef of your restaurant doesn't know what good food is, how are you expected to create great food? If Gordon Ramsay didn't throw you out half the time, (laughs) you would probably be a lousy cook. And so... I think that's what the major issue is, that there's nobody at the top to tell you that your design sucks. And I think the most obvious place is this is consumer electronics. So whether it is an AV unit or a digital camera, I mean, if you look at most digital camera designs, I think particularly the Japanese ones, it's as if someone sat down there and said, how can we make this menu system the most confusing and (laughs) opaque possible. Like what's something that people need to do all the time? Format your SD card. Well, let's put it in the custom menu. That's the number eighth menu and the 15th choice of the eighth menu because we don't think they should format it so often or I don't know what the thinking is. And then somebody else may kick in and say, well, but people need to format all the time. So they say, okay, the ninth menu will be a custom menu. So if you can figure out how to find the format, you can put it in your custom menu and assign that to a custom button so that as you're taking a picture of someone surfing or playing football, you're going to remember, oh yeah, my custom menu is the this button, the back button while I hold down the thing and I chant something. And from that, I can format my SD card. <laughs> and so that gets through the system And the dumbass CEO, who probably doesn't even use the camera, has no clue that people are suffering out there. I don't understand that at all. To me, it's a total lack of empathy for the customer. And if I may illustrate this with another story, Martin Lindstrom once told me the story that he had a large pharmaceutical client. And they, of course, they, the executive team expressed the desire to, quote unquote, get closer to the customer, to develop empathy, right? So most large companies do that by hiring McKinsey, but Martin Lindstrom did something different. So he took them all, the execs, and he made them breathe through straws. And just suffice it to say, most execs could not do that very long. And so some of them were actually upset and angry. You know, why are you making us breathe through straws? And the answer was, well, that's how someone with asthma lives. So you're a pharmaceutical. You have patients who have asthma. You now can empathize with what it's like to have asthma. I think that's a
1: great lesson. It's an amazing story. Given all the exposure you've had to different teams across different products, and and assuming that you have a CEO who does understand the value of a well-designed experience, what do you see as the biggest barrier to collaboration within a team across engineering, product, and design?
2: Yeah, I may be just pounding a dead horse, but I just think it's lack of empathy. That from the appearance of the product and the user interface, it just doesn't appear that the engineers or the marketing people or anyone has any empathy for the customer, like what actually happens. Let's take a case in point that you might consider ironic, which is Apple. So with Apple, until very recently, if you had a, a MacBook with two or three USB-C slots, I just am astounded that you know someone could put that out for years. Now, maybe I'm totally wrong, and statistically, 99.9% of the people with MacBooks only ever plug one thing into it, which is power. But I don't know about you, but like my dongle, okay, I'm not making this up. My dongle had a dongle.
0: Yes. I currently (laughs) have dongles connected to dongles on my how can a
2: dongle have a dongle? Like (laughs) excuse me, Tim Cook, do you have a personal valet to download your SD card? Do you have someone who makes your labels for you? Is it connected to a Roadcaster Pro are you taking an HDMI feed out of your DSLR that goes into your ATM mini that then goes into your IMAX dongle's dongle do you <laughs> yes. ever have to print a label <laughs> or download or you know do you ever have to mix do you ever have to do anything except charge I cannot understand that I am beside myself <laughs> can you tell how passionate I feel about this <laughs> And then,
1: heaven forbid, you should hit the escape key on the touch bar, you know, while you're composing a message or something like that. Yeah. Done, and what know, is the purpose times.
2: of that touch bar? I mean, so your valet has... To, <laughs> <I don't>, <laughs> <laughs> and they've had to walk a lot of that back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, well, seven years later, you have empathy all of a sudden. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> You've yeah. been breathing through a straw. Your customers <laughs> have been breathing through a straw using a MacBook for eight years. And now... Thank God Jonathan Ive is in there because Jonathan Ive, in his English accent, will say, we have a revolutionary new MacBook. It has an SD card reader and it has USB-C and it has USB-A and it has, you know, an open architecture. This is remarkable. No one has ever thought of this before. Well, Jonathan, it was there eight years ago, <laughs> <laughs> you know, in a 2015 MacBook. There It was there. I hate to tell you. You didn't have to have a dongle for your SD
1: card. Guy, you do a lot of different things. You write books, you're an entrepreneur, you have a podcast, you teach. How do those different things tie together and how do they complement each other?
2: Oh, man, you, you're framing me with your question. You're assuming that it is tied together <laughs> <laughs> and there's a plan. <laughs> there isn't a plan. I am peripatetic, to put it mildly. You could say schizophrenic. I just happen to fall in love with stuff. So today, I am the chief evangelist of Canva, online graphics design service. I'm a podcaster and I'm a speaker. And I'll say the bulk of my time is spent podcasting because podcasting is such, (laughs) it's such, it's just a black hole that you pour time into. And so there is no plan. I just fall in love with stuff. I fell in love with Canvas, fell in love with Macintosh. I fell in love with podcasting. I just fall in love with stuff and I just go for it. You know, I see you have a surfboard. I I surf also. That was another thing. My daughter took it up. I fell in love with it. So I just, I'm whole hog into it now. I surf every day. There was no plan. Nobody plans to take up surfing at 61. Trust me. (laughs) That is 55 years too late. So that's just the peripatetic nature. I am also a great fan of Carol Dweck. Carol Dweck is the author of Mindset. And so basically, you can have a growth mindset where you try new stuff. You assume that changes can be made, or you have a fixed mindset, which is, this is what I've been dealt with. This is what I can do. I'm not going to try anymore. I'm just going to stick with what I'm comfortable. Well, I have a hyper-growth mindset.
3: Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Maybe that's why Bluehost has been recommended by WordPress.org since 2005. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. That's Bluehost.com Wondersuite.
0: Support for Design Better comes from Gusto, who make running a small business easy. Get three months free at Gusto.com designbetter Design Better once you run your first payroll. I have run a few small businesses in my career, and each time I've set one up, the prospect of figuring out payroll and HR, it just freaks me out. But then I found Gusto. It's an incredible tool that Eli and I use to run our own payroll here at Design Better. Gusto made setup easy, and they even helped us sort out tax registrations with multiple states. Gusto is a brilliant tool, it's well-designed, and it's incredibly usable. Design Better listeners can get three months free once you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com slash design better. Can't recommend it enough. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. If you sit all day at work, like most of us do, and you've never tried a desk that can transition between sitting and standing, let me tell you, it's a complete game changer. I often struggle with hip pain that's caused by prolonged sitting and a standing desk has helped me switch up my posture during the workday so I can avoid that pain and just feel better. Standing while I work, it helps me get those creative juices flowing and it helps me focus and stay productive. I'm way more alert, which is helpful, especially after lunch. Each standing desk from Uplift Desk is built with solid materials. They have so many different beautiful woods to choose from. They're built to last and you can customize it to match your space. Plus, you get free shipping, free returns, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Just go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5, and you'll get 5% off your order. That's upliftdesk.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. Check them out. Do you find that as you adopt new things, using your your phrase, you fall in love with a new discipline, a new hobby, do you apply some of those lessons that you learned, let's say, from podcasting to other things or from surfing to podcasting, startup advising? How does that wisdom transfer in your life? Well, uh, hopefully it does it completely organically and without thinking. I can't tell you that I sit down
2: and I say, so you know, what did I learn from the Macintosh division that I can now apply to podcasting? Maybe there are people who do that, but I don't. But if you ask me a question like that, and I actually gave it some cogent, rational thought, there are many things that I learned from Apple, case in point, that your current customer cannot tell you how to revolutionize a product or service. They can tell you, I want it. A better, faster, cheaper Apple II, but they cannot tell you. I want you to build a Macintosh which has a one button mouse, a WYSIWYG user interface. I want it to be totally incompatible with everything I've ever bought for my Apple II. And that lesson, you know, I could apply that to podcasting that the people who are currently listening to your podcast could probably not tell you how to truly create a great revolution in podcasting. They just want, you know, better, faster, cheaper, what you are doing. And that's the challenge. So you've learned
1: from the process of creating a podcast. I mean, you obviously interviewed a lot of great folks from Jane Goodall to Seth Godin and, and learned from them. But what about the process itself? What does that taught you?
2: I think the process of podcasting has reinforced a lesson that I learned in writing, which is it's not the act of writing, nor the act of recording. The way you separate great writers and great podcasters from mediocre ones is your willingness to edit. So editing is the key to writing and podcasting. And so if, if you are someone who believes, as a writer or a podcaster, that you turn on the record switch, or you get your fountain pen, and you sit on your windswept porch overlooking the pacific ocean and the words flow from your mind through your arm through your gold nib fountain pen onto your parchment and if you believe that's how writing is (laughs) boy have i got (laughs) some news for you and so i think the thing i learned the, the most is that it is all about the editing it is about grinding it out i'm a big youtube fan i just watch youtube all day long And not for what many people may be thinking right now, but I love to watch those little documentaries about, you know, this is how a samurai sword is made, right? And you watch this process of they take these iron fillings and they put them in this oven and it comes out this block of metal and then they get this block of metal and they pound it and then they fold it over and they pound it and they fold it over and they pound it and they fold it over and they pound it and and then they take it and then they... You know, now it's kind of like a sword, and then it's on this grinding wheel, and then finally, you know, months later, it's on a whetstone and all this kind of stuff. That's what podcasting is like. It's like you take this piece of metal and you fold it over and fold it over and pound it and pound it and grind it and whetstone it, and finally, it's a podcast. And I think that's true of podcasting
0: or writing. I think you're a Dan Pink fan. Is that correct? Yes, I am a Dan Pink fan. And Dan Pink, who we had on the show, he talks about selling as like an essential thing to yep. any job. Doesn't matter yep. what you're doing, if you're a designer, a developer, product manager, or, or <laughs> anything in between. Yeah, that <laughs> sa- sales is part of it. I'm curious to hear your take on sales and just like the communication process and how you see that as maybe an important tool or maybe not for anyone building a successful career. Well, I would say that when,
2: push comes to shove, there are only two functions in business. You got to make it and you got to sell it. (laughs) So if you're an engineer, you can make it. And if you're anybody else, you better be selling. And so I think it is an essential skill. And I think that many people may too narrowly define selling, that selling is when you are asking for an order or you're making a sale at a cash register or you know people are in your in the checkout or they have their shopping basket and you know that's selling but i think selling is when you're breathing you're selling i mean selling is convincing someone to come on your podcast selling is convincing someone to sponsor your podcast selling is convincing your spouse that it's okay to work 5 hours on a podcast <laughs> <laughs> you know, there may be better things to do. And selling is getting an upgrade into first class. Selling is, instead of two side orders, can I get three? I mean, you I don't know when you're not selling, frankly. It's its hard for me to understand when you're not selling. Uh, <laughs> I think it's an absolutely essential skill. And people should not look down on it like this. it's this greasy death of a salesman kind of immoral, if not amoral activity. I think it's necessary. It's completely, utterly necessary. Politicians are always selling. I mean, when you call up Comcast and you ask them to please pull a line into your house so you can have high-speed internet, you're (laughs) selling. You're not buying, you're selling.
1: You got your start in sales, Guy, in the jewelry industry before you went to Apple. What Were were there any kind of specific key lessons you took away from that job?
2: Yeah, so this links very well to what we just discussed, which is before I got into high tech, I was getting an MBA, and the MBA program where I went was a four-day-a-week program. So I had the Fridays off. And I come from a lower middle-class family, so it's not like I'm a trust fund baby, and you know I could just call dad or mom up and get another, you know, tranche of cash. So I started working for a jewelry company, and it was a jewelry manufacturer. So it took gold and diamonds and made it into jewelry and sold it to jewelry store. So we didn't sell to the consumer, we sold to the store who sold to the consumer. And that is a brutal brutal business because when a jewelry store buyer is trying to buy, they are trying to buy at the absolute best deal possible. And at some level it is, you know, gold is such and such an ounce and diamonds are such and such per carat and everybody knows that the spot price of gold is x today. And uh, diamonds are a little harder because there's cut and clarity and color, and you know there's a little bit more magic about whether it's you know this kind of diamond or that kind of diamond. But fundamentally, a one carat D flawless is a one carat D flawless, and you can look up and say, okay, a one carat D flawless is X dollars. So everything is kind of a commodity, expensive commodity, but commodity. And so selling a commodity, no matter how beautiful. Is a very challenging process. It is hand to hand combat. And I think one of the best things that I ever did, not that I planned it this way, was work in the jewelry business because I truly learned you have to sell and how to sell and how to get buyers to trust you and how to get buyers to see your dream that mm, you can't just throw my piece of jewelry on a scale and figure out how much gold there is per ounce. There's design, there's romance, there's, you know, whatever. And that has been useful for the rest of my life. It was just the best training. So, you know, when people tell me that right after college, if they want to become a venture capitalist or they want to work for Goldman Sachs or McKinsey, you know, I would prefer they go to work for Procter & Gamble, learning how to sell DAWN into <laughs> markets, right? And what it takes to sell DAWN and what it takes to sell Swiffers or working for IBM, calling on people. Because I think... Sales training early in your career is so so valuable.
0: Absolutely. So selling is a foundational skill for anyone who's getting started in their career. What other guidance do you have for people in that? Let's say the first five years, like get out of college. Hopefully, your degree maybe has some direct uh, support <laughs> of, of what you're going into, but that's not always how it works. Yep. I studied painting and ended up in software, and still, like there's a loose connection what advice do you have for people like, to sort of like get a good foundation of skills that would set them up for success?
2: Yeah. I think that this concept of the first job having to be perfect is totally flawed. That particularly now, people are probably going to have 20, 30 jobs in their career. And you might not even remember what your first job was. And so I think that in a sense, it really doesn't matter what your first job is. So let's take two extremes. So everybody's trying to find that perfect job with the perfect title, perfect responsibilities to build up to your LinkedIn profile so that you know you look like you're worth a billion dollars. And then there's the one who you know absolutely takes the wrong job, you know, goes to work for let's take the worst case. So you have a degree in I don't know, biochemistry or something, and You go to work for Terranos, and you think, oh my God, I got a job at Terranos! They got this like world-class board. They got unlimited venture capital. They're going to make it so you can just put a drop of blood in a device and it'll like give you 50 different diagnoses. Like this is the dream job. Well, come to find out all of that's bullshit, right? And in fact, criminally bullshit. And so I would make the case that that might be one of the most valuable experiences of your life because you will see... If you work for Theranos, assuming you weren't arrested, but assuming you work for Theranos and not the person arrested, you would learn about just the sort of bandwagon effect. Like, how did so many people pour so much money into something that didn't exist? That's a very valuable lesson. How come nobody screamed that, you know, this is it's not happening. It's not true. We're, you know, fake results. Why did not someone not tell the empress that she had no clothes on? I mean, what, what happened there? So there's so many lessons you could learn from a negative experience. The opposite is you go to work and you're employee number five at Google. And, you know, you just, you had no idea what it was. You just said, okay, so they're recruiting at Stanford. I went to work for Google. Who the hell knows what it was? And now, five years later, you're worth, I don't know, 200 million bucks. You just grabbed the brass ring. You just did this perfectly out of college. Well, I think the downside of that, although you are wealthy now, the downside of that is it's going to be very hard for the rest of your life for you to have any sense of humility or to separate causation from correlation. So you may think that you caused the success of Google because you were an early employee and blah, blah, blah. In fact, you just happened to get on a tsunami. And you survived. The rising tide in that case floated all boats. So it's not that you're a great person or really accomplished everything. You just happened to hit the lottery. So those are the two extremes. So all of this is telling you that, you know, don't sweat the first job. If you pick something total loser, at least you'll learn from it. If you pick something that's a total winner, God bless you, you'll be worth a lot of money, but you may become an insufferable asshole for the rest of your life. <laughs> so... One more thing I'd like to address, I think that the P word is vastly overrated, and the P word is passion. That you, you hear lots of people saying, pursue your passion, find your passion. And so people who have not found their passion read about this and they think, oh my God, you know, my life is incomplete, I haven't found my passion, I haven't found this thing that I want to dedicate the rest of my life to, it. and I'm already 22, my God, I'm behind the curve. It's total bullshit. So I think that you know the passion test is much too high a bar to try to overcome. The much lower and more rational bar is an interest bar. So this looks interesting. Personal computers look interesting. Podcasting look interesting. Asian art history looks interesting. So when these interesting things come up, pursue them. And after you pursue... A few dozen maybe you may be able to find a true passion but to start off thinking i read i got to find my passion that is not how the world works i am 67 years old and i found my passion for podcasting at 65 so you could make the case that for the first 65 years of my life i did not have a passion although that's not true i had macintosh and candles. but give yourself a break don't hold yourself to the passion, test,
1: Guy, you have such a wonderful sense of optimism and it's clear that you have a lot of gratitude. And, and one thing I've noticed in my teaching over the past nine years, I've been teaching a class at Stanford and students come in, they seem more and more just sort of overwhelmed by the world and, and everything that's going on. And it, it's understandable there's a lot of serious things going on in the world, but you could argue that that's been in the case for, entire human history we we faced (laughs) adversity as a species so how do you inspire people to you know maintain that sense of
2: gratitude and, and hopefulness and optimism well it's not clear that i actually do that but i was brought up with a very distinct perspective of noblesse oblige which is that my interpretation of this is that listen if you're lucky and really it is a lot of it has to do with luck if you're lucky you owe it to the rest of society to pay it back and help it out. You know, it's not because, as we used to say in Hawaii, it's not that your shit doesn't stink. You're just lucky. I feel a moral obligation to pay back society. Don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to paint a picture of Guy as the hero who got on the last helicopter being taken out of the. American embassy in Vietnam and you know then I landed in Bakersfield and with one suitcase and I lifted myself up by bootstraps or I haven't had to overcome that kind of poverty I haven't had to overcome any kind of medical issues or all that so I'm not a hero okay, as Charles Barkley would say I'm not a hero but on the other hand it's not like I'm a trust fund baby either but I was very lucky I was born into a family where my parents and grandparents made great sacrifices to move from Japan to come to America, to pick sugarcane in Hawaii. My parents were really big believers in education. So an elementary school teacher told them to get me out of the public school system because I had too much potential and put me in the private school system so that I would go to college. And my parents, who were not making a lot of money, did that, sacrificed it. That got me into a college prep school. That college prep school... To this day, I don't know why I applied to Stanford, but somehow I did, and I got in, miracle upon miracle. Then I got to Stanford, and I loved it, and I met Mike Boich. Mike Boych is the guy who recruited me into Apple eventually, and the rest is history. So yes, I worked hard. Yes, I studied hard. Yes, there was grit and all that kind of stuff. But let's just be honest, man. I just was lucky. And I think one of the realizations is, as you get older, that you are lucky. And so if you are lucky, you should help people who may not be
0: as lucky. You know, Guy, you've got a new book out called Wise Guy, which encourage listeners to check out. And in that, you talk about adoption. And that was the part that really resonated for me. I'm the father of two adopted African-American boys. And much of what you said about adoption and how it is so satisfying as a parent to have that experience. It's kind of hard to even put into words, but it's profound is basically the way that I would describe it. And I wonder if you could maybe share a little bit about your decision and and building your family. So we have four kids. Two of them
2: are biologically ours. (laughs) My wife and I had sex for two of them. My wife and I did not have sex for the other two. And so those two are adopted from Guatemala. And I will tell you that, man, my life would be a lot less awesome if we had stopped with the two. And so, you know, a lot of people may think from the outside looking in that the adopted parents are doing a favor to the adopted kids, that they're, you know, taking them out of poverty or, you know, whatever. I don't have that attitude at all. I think my kids have done me a favor. They have so enriched my life. So adoption is just a you know beautiful beautiful thing. Now I don't have a Bill Gates foundation where I'm you know ending malaria or anything like that. But I think that you know for those two kids we've really done something to make the world a better place and they have made my life better. My wife's life better also. When these kids are placed in your arms that's it. I mean, it is a life-changing moment. I feel very strong about that. Adoption is one of the most beautiful things in the
0: world, and and, totally. and I don't mean just for the kids. Obviously, I mean for the parents too. For, for the whole family. I mean, yeah. it's just it is magical, and there's something really magical about the idea of we all came together. Yeah, you know, from different places to create this this family, which is really profound. Yeah. So, Guy, uh, as we wrap up here, I wonder if you could share with us what you are currently excited about, something you're reading, watching, learning, listening to that you might want to share with others. Oh, my. Well, I
2: keep returning to this, but I just love podcasting. My only regret with podcasting, like surfing and like hockey, which is three of my passions in my life, is that I didn't take it up earlier. And I started podcasting two years ago. I should have started five years ago. And I think I was just born for podcasting. I love every aspect of podcasting. I love the prep. In fact, in one hour and 14 minutes, I'm going to interview Julia Cameron. How would Guy Kawasaki ever have encountered Julia Cameron before? The artist's way, right? And so I was born for podcasting because I have access to people because of my, I don't know, visibility in tech. And I think that I have a way of figuring out some questions to ask that maybe other podcasters don't, just because, I don't know why, just because, just just the way I'm built. And I think I have a moral obligation to get the wisdom of a Julia Cameron or a Jane Goodall or a Steve Wozniak out into the world. So I feel like I have a moral obligation to podcast. You may tell me, Guy, you are so full of shit. Like, what (laughs) what drug are you on? But I really do believe that. I love the whole thing. I love the editing, as I've said. And when I die, I want people to say, Guy empowered people. At times in his career, he empowered people with his evangelism of Canva and Macintosh. At times, he empowered people with his speaking. At times, he empowered people with his writing. And I especially want them to say, and he empowered me with his podcasting because he exposed me to people that I never would have been exposed to. So that's what I want on my epitaph.
0: (laughs) That's great. And speaking of, where can people learn more about everything you're doing, including your writing and your podcasting and speaking and so forth? Well... There is GuyKawasaki.com,
2: but really, if you really want to see what I'm into, just listen to my podcast, and that is RemarkablePeople.com. Fantastic. Guys,
1: so great having you on the show. Hopefully, we can go for a surf together sometime.
2: Yeah. (laughs) uh, Well, if you would just take up longboarding, (laughs) sure, because I I ain't taking up shortboarding. (laughs) I'll bring a longboard. I'll bring a longboard.